the most orthodox of all Marxist economists I have ever met. The reason why I'm still a Marxist is that I claim that this structure of belief, of displaced belief, you find it in what Marx described as commodity fetishism. That all really dialectical and intelligent human beings will have a sense for evil and some sympathy for the devil. Or they will be just a little stifled and bored. I think that's not wrong. Just a little sympathy for the devil will hurt. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. Oh, right. Bouillant Somay. 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 Bouillant Somay is the guest uh, today on, on the channel. Um, we're going to be discussing populism. He is the author of many books, including The End of Truth, Five Essays on the Demise of Neoliberalism, and The New Utopian Politics of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, amongst other books. Um, I'm glad to have you on uh, the channel to talk. And uh, I guess before we dive into the questions about populism, you should take this opportunity to fill out your bio a little bit and introduce yourself to the people who will be watching this. Okay. Uh, I'm quite an old guy. Um, I was uh, trained in English language and literature back in the 70s. I had my BA and MA degrees on English language. And then uh, I tried to do my PhD on the same topic, but then again, I changed my mind. Uh, and I did a lot of other things, among them my uh, street singer, uh, copywriter, uh, publishing, editing, uh, 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 journalism, mm -hmm. all of these. And then uh, at one point, around two year 2000, I said, well, that's enough uh, wandering about. Uh, and I settled down in a university in Istanbul. I started teaching cultural studies and English literature. Uh, and I did that for 17 years. And then somewhere in between, I went to uh, London and got a PhD on psychosocial studies. Go ahead. Yeah, 2015, I... It signed the petition for peace uh, and then after the coup or attempted coup or whatever uh, in Turkey uh, well I was invited so I had to leave my job and leave the country uh, I went to Brussels, Oslo and now I'm in Berlin uh, just on different scholarships uh, and this is how it is right now. I, if I go back to Turkey, I'm already, uh, my trial is over. I was, uh, uh, oh, I forgot the word. Anyway, I was cleared. Oh, okay. No, good. So if you go back to Turkey, you won't face any repercussions, no, are you? No, not any other charges, but I won't be able to find a job. Okay, I see. And, so, and that was because you signed a, a petition. Yeah, that, that was all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sounds delightful. Um, so <laughs> uh, so um, 
what we're going to talk about is populism. But before we do, I want to ask you what psychosocial uh, research entails. Like it, psychosocial, I feel like um, that might be related to psychoanalysis. Um, yes, in, in one sense, yes, definitely. I, I mean, psychosocial studies is quite new. I mean, it was uh, invented in early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I studied, my, I mean, my PhD supervisor was uh, Stephen Frosch, uh, who actually invented the area, uh, along with Lynn Siegel. Uh, it is I, an interdisciplinary, or I prefer to call it transdisciplinary, uh, area between uh, psychoanalysis, history, sociology, and in one sense, literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say strictly, it has a Go ahead. It is strictly interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so being interdisciplinary means that um, it, it isn't a, a, a synthesis of those disciplines completely, but rather um, it it relies upon yes. I don't know, all those different disciplines to function. Yes, freely going around in all of them and trying to use the same methodology, but in different areas, and then trying to combine them rather than trying to create an imaginary synthesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a combination rather than a synthesis. Okay. And so... Would you say that it has a similar um, outlook or a similar approach to that the Frankfurt School critical theorists took? Because they also were trying to synthesize psychoanalysis and yes. sociology. Yes, definitely. But they were trying to synthesize. That was their problem because, first of all, they, they were philosophers mm-hmm. uh, rather than social scientists, you see. Mm-hmm. 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 So uh, we're not exactly into uh, philosophy in psychosocial studies. What the, course, what would be the distinct philosoph- uh, backgrounds in philosoph- philosophy? We have studied that, but uh, we're not trying to be philosophers rather than social scientists with a materialist methodology. So would you say that you are more um Im- Im- driven by empirical data than the critical theorists, theorists were who were more maybe rational argumentation was their mode yeah it's a combination of both i mean in in birkbeck where i got my degree birkbeck, birkbeck college mm-hmm. uh, in london uh, many of the people there are into uh, research right now Mm-hmm. There, I mean, in the department psychosocial studies, but there were people who were more into psychoanalysis, which is not about research because you cannot do research in psychoanalysis, except when you're practicing. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Now well, they're I'm... doing research on uh, more on gender studies right now. Mm-hmm. They're more leaned on gender studies which needs some kind of a uh, 
material research. Uh, but before that, in my time, that was early 2010s, in my time, we were more into theory, critical theory. Mm -hmm. It changes, and it's mm -hmm. a good thing that it changes because, I mean, those different people just feed each other, you see? Mm -hmm. um, so, moving into the, I mean, I think I could talk to you about just the broad picture of uh, psychosocial studies for hours, probably, to try to get yes. my hands on it. Um, uh, I guess I will ask one more question about this. But would one of the differences between psychosocial studies and critical theory be that critical theory was looking for uh, universals um, yes. as philosophers, and whereas the psychosocial studies is more uh, interested in particular empirical facts? Is, would that be fair? At least using them. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not always into research, uh, but even when we're not, even when we're uh, dealing with critical theory, uh, we always go back to research rather than philosophizing, like Adorno, for example. I mean, Adorno did participate in an empirical study about the authoritarian personality. Yes. Um, but one of the interesting things about that study is that the, in the end he said um, what we fail to recognize as we gather the empirical data through surveys is how the structure of uh, society itself um, creates the conditions of our surveys and that that you know we we're failing to be as critical as we ought to be by relying on this empirical data as if it is not in itself determined by let's say the universal structuring power of capital accumulation and exploitation and so on um, so, uh, yeah, Adorno was critical of what he called positivism. Um, and, uh, and, and by that, I think critical of strict empiricism. Yes. So are we all. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, okay. So, so let's, let's talk about, um, your, you sent me, a a, a chapter from a book, uh, you know, I don't know which book it is, but some chapter you wrote called the, the, End Psycho of Truth. the End of Truth. Okay, and the and it's titled "The Psychopolitics of the Entitled Victim: The Coming of Age of Contemporary Populism." And I've I read it, uh, and I have uh, a few questions uh, as I go through. One of the difficulties I think I have in rejecting populism in, in its entirety is the fear that. Um, by rejecting populism, we'll slide back into some sort of uh, contemporary version of the belief in the divine right of kings um, that <clears throat> by will invest uh, experts and bureaucrats and professionals with uh, authority uh, as above the, the authority of the ordinary and everyday person. Um, and the, the appeal of populism is this appeal to some pretty core enlightenment values that come out of Locke and uh, uh, elsewhere. So um, I think it's tricky to, uh, to, to launch the kind of critique that you, you launched without making that turn, but I think you managed to. But um, I just want to start by asking about the notion of the people as it is expressed in like the U.S. Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Um, it seems to rest upon 
this secular notion of natural rights, even though the, those rights are given to us by God, but the the idea is that every person, as opposed to just a, a set of elites like kings, has rights um, that they're uh, you know they they're born with, and that as such they they have the right collectively to rule their own lives um, individually and collectively. Um, do you do you have a problem with this notion of the people as a, when it's set into opposition to the, the the absolutist king whose authority is you know comes from his divine connection to the the Lord up in heaven? That's okay. my first question. Uh, to start with, I uh, don't use the term people, right? Because when I say the people. Nobody understands what I'm talking about, but everybody acts as if they do. Right. We don't have a consensus upon the concept, but we act as if we have. This is our main problem. Uh, because the people, uh, demos in ancient Greece or populus in mm -hmm. ancient Rome, uh, never mean the people. In ancient Greece, it was only 20% of the population. There were the slaves, there were the women who were not people. They weren't included in the demos. It means half of the population was already out. So the slaves were already out. And then we had the uh, craftsmen, which did not include were not included in the people, and of course they were the metoikoi, the foreigners, the immigrants. They were not mm -hmm. included in the people. So it was only the, only twenty percent, mm -hmm. and that was the heyday of democracy in Athens. Mm -hmm. In Rome, the populace meant the same thing. The women were out, the slaves were out, the artisans were out. Okay, who remained? Only the patricians. And they were the people. You see, this is our problem. Because people who pretend to speak in the name of the people never mean the people. They are the true elitists. Mm -hmm. But... All the populists love to yell about being against elitism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see, Trump is a perfect example. I mean, all his, uh, in his campaign and his, in his two campaigns, actually, and uh, throughout his presidency, he always talk, uh, talked about the elitists it was just that he was against the elitists that were not part of his gang. Mm -hmm. So you see, populism pretends to be against elitism, but it is not. It is just for some other kind of elitism. Mm -hmm. In Turkey, we, we have a perfect example for that. I mean, uh, when the Ottoman Empire was a sultanate, uh, there was this uh, 
opposition, mostly soldiers, we call them Ittihad Viteraki in late 19th century. And starting from Ittihad Viteraki into the Republic, and even until now, all the populists talk about going down to people. Mm-hmm. which is a covert acceptance of the fact that they are about the people already. They always are going down to people. Mm-hmm. Even the leftist ones, the Turkish left in the 60s and the 70s, they loved the expression. We have to go down to people. Stay where you are. I mean, the people are not downstairs. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so this is our problem, I think, because when I speak against populism, I'm not speaking about the rule, speaking against the rule of people. I mean, mm-hmm. if populists are going to bring that about, let them bring that about, but they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. They're just, they will just pretend they, they represent the people. And in order to be able to represent something, you first have to invent it. Because mm-hmm. the people as such does not exist. There is the population, which is made up of different classes, different genders, different mm-hmm. sexual orientations, different ethnicities, different skin colors, for God's sake. So mm-hmm. these people are never together in the same boat. Well, just to, I mean, I think that when Jefferson wrote, you know, uh, about the people, um, and and their natural rights he wasn't he was thinking of the people per- probably in a particular way um he didn't include everyone uh as a person but it nonetheless could be seen that the people were the subjects who up until that point had been ruled over by kings that by by in, in a different structure of society and they'd reach back to the Greeks and the Romans and and to the history of of the glorious revolution um, to give them uh, a sense of a new form of society, one which would be democratic. And um, so it seems to me that while it's true that we have not, uh, we don't have a great conception of the people as as they are in and of themselves, we can see who the people are by comparing them historically anyway, to who they were not um, at the time that the people, you know, United say in America were supposedly taking power and through a revolutionary struggle. So, so we know what the people are negatively. We know that they're not the, their aristocracy. They're not the Kings. Okay. Um, that would be my, my first uh, objection, I, I suppose. And then the second objection would be, um, it seems to me that you have to hold on to this notion of the rejection of the divine right of kings, the notion of the dem- democracy and the pe- rule of the people, in order to develop a more thoroughgoing uh, understanding of society and the need for a transformation through the elimination of, a cl- of classes, through the, the overcoming of the class nature of society. That if you abandon the notion of the people altogether, then you abandon too much and you you'll you'll end up not having a 
solid foundation for a class struggle later on. But I would say as a Marxist that obviously the people are not homogenous, they're not one kind of person. They are divided up by class structures, by exploitation, by all sorts of other factors, and that the key for the people ruling would be for them to take uh, responsibility for the way they're divided up and and also to probably some aspects of the, the people, the workers, to take responsibility for the ending their own exploitation. Definitely, but uh, the problem with populists is that populists do not see the division line between uh, classes and all other things, but let, let's forget about them and only keep classes. Uh, I will write, uh, read something from Marx himself. Uh, mm -hmm. He said this in 1852, I think. The Democrats read populists because they are the same thing, actually, in 1852. Democrats mm -hmm. come from demos, populists come from populus which are the Greek and the Latin of the same concept, right? Mm -hmm. The Democrats concede that the privileged class confronts them, but they, along with all the rest of the nation, form the people. What they represent is the people's rights. What interests them is the people's interests. Accordingly, when, they, when, the, when a struggle is impending, they do not need to examine the interests and positions of the different classes. So you see, this mm -hmm. is our problem. Right, I agree with you there. Anybody who pretends to represent the people as a whole is just trying to cover up the existing class struggle within the people. Mm -hmm. Which means that they have some interest in doing that. Right. Well, to, to go back into American history for a moment, you know, you can think about the People's Party at the towards, towards the end of the 19th yeah. century. Um, they were uh, very concerned about the power of the northern banks and northern industry. Uh, um, and uh, they wanted to get off the gold standard and try to do something about the way that the, these agrarian communities were feeling tremendous pressure from the, from the debt that had accrued as they tried to modernize and industrialize their, their practices. Um, and so they had solutions to it that were based on changing the currency and, you know, trying to create deflation or inflation. Uh, and from a socialist perspective, I think even at the time, it would be easy to see that those kinds of solutions would be temporary at best, that capital would, you know, continue to accumulate um, and, and monopolies would form. Um, but despite the fact that their solutions were inadequate, they were... Uh, pointing to the inequity that was intrinsic to capitalist production. And they were aligned with, there were socialists who were aligned with them at the time. But And what, what went wrong for the People's Party primarily was when they were incorporated into the Democratic Party. Um, and <clears throat> their, their policies uh, were really focused only around the gold standard rather than many other kinds of reforms that would have empowered small farmers and workers. So um, it seems to me that uh, even historically that the People's Party had potential, you know, that there was a, 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 the conception of the people 
was a, was sort of like a starting point towards a, a first step towards understanding a, a, a class-based socialist struggle and that the difficulty was not in thinking that everyday people deserved power but rather giving up too much to the current you know to the really existing conditions and and not seeing far enough as to what needed to be changed uh <clears throat> well, during the uh, Glorious Revolution and immediately after that, the Whigs mm -hmm. used to use the slogan, Vox Populi Vox Dei, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Which mm -hmm. is uh, interesting because the Glorious Revolution didn't talk much about people, but uh, rather about commons, mm -hmm. which is a completely different concept, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, the commons is more intrinsic to the Orient. Uh, populous, the people, belongs to Europe. And Europe, of course, people don't like to accept this as fact, but Europe is a very tiny part of the history of uh, civilization. I thought the commons were part of the European tradition as well, and in the UK, for instance, um, because there was a common land <clears throat> that people would would, would That's farm. right, but commons was used in the Orient for like millennia mm -hmm. uh, as Avam. And was it around the land that was held in common and the kinds of farming that was going on in on yes. common land? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is and then when the empires the Oriental empires came about, uh, the emperors, I mean, the Huangdi in China, the Mongolian emperor in India, the pharaoh in uh, Egypt, and of course, later the Ottoman sultans, and of course, the Char in Russia. Uh, when they came about, they always came as the representative of the commons. Mm -hmm. rather than some kind of a king with a God-given right to rule. I mean, in the East, there was no such thing as the divine right of emperors. Mm -hmm. It wasn't divine. It was just that they represented the commons, the avam, the reaya in, in the Ottoman Empire, for example. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was interesting because the Re'aya, the Awam, actually consisted of almost all the population because there was no lower class beneath them, like uh, Western European societies. Because in the East, nobody wants to believe that, but they should research it. In the East, there was no slavery. It no, there never had been. Of course, there were slaves, which is different. Because there were wars and war. Pe people who were uh, taken prisoner in wars were used as slaves, but they were mostly domestic slaves. In the East, in the Orient, production was never dependent on slave labor. Mm. Again, Europeans love to believe that the pyramids were uh, built by slaves, which were not. No. They were built by indentured workers. 
Okay, an indentured worker's life standards are not much better than a slave, but they couldn't be bought or sold, they couldn't be maimed or killed by their, their master, and their children were born free, which is a huge difference from slavery. So there were no slaves. There was only the reaya doing the, the avam uh, doing the production. In all these huge Eastern empires, which were almost 9% of the world, and 90% of the world, for millennia, you see, Europeans are a tiny bit of world's population, and they became the ruling uh, mode of production only for the last, let's say, five or six hundred years. But they love to believe that they represent the entire world history, which is, of course, uh, something we can understand. Uh, because, I mean, if you're so tiny, yes, you will have some kind of a delusion of grandeur, and it is forgivable. It will go away <laughs> in another hundred years. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. So, I mean, I, I, you know, 500 years is nothing to sneeze at, you know, for, for the Europeans to, to dominate for 500 years. That's something. But, um, okay, so... Uh, yeah, me... well, I'm not sneezing at it, but I mean, <laughs> it can go away in a very short while, so... Yeah, let, yeah, definitely. Let's not take too much... Uh, let's not be too much proud of it. Well, I'm not proud of it, but... No, uh, no, no. Are you but... <laughs> European? Your, your accent is American. <laughs> I am American, that's right. Yeah, that's so. true. So you're not part of it, I mean. Because <laughs> right. Americans are not Europeans anymore. Right, right. I'm not... I don't... I certainly, to right now, feel very little love for Europe or the UK. Um, <laughs> so, so um, let me see. Uh, so, all right, uh, what you're saying is interesting. I'm wondering, though, um, uh, if in the East, where the the divine right of kings uh, was never the you know never what governed. Um, uh, how would a democratic or uh, socialist movement arise in resistance to what? Uh, it, it wouldn't. So, okay, now I will just turn around and speak from the other direction. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to thank the Europeans for that. Because in their modernization drive, mm -hmm they introduced us the concept of democracy because in the East, that concept would, would, concept would never arise if left to itself. Mm -hmm. Probably there would, there would have been a better and a softer means of imperial power. Mm -hmm. Probably a more uh, egalitarian meritocracy Mm -hmm. But the concept of democracy would probably never arise. So we have mm -hmm. to thank the Europeans for that. Right. But you, you, so you would say that that isn't a, a, a more humanistic and a, a way of living to live in something like a democracy than under imperial rule. Um, it, 
democracy is just a newcomer. I mean, uh, it, the, the so-called Greek democracy was not a democracy for women. It was, an, it was not a democracy for slaves. And these people mm -hmm. made up of like 80% of the population. Roman Republic was not like that at all. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a real democracy, we're talking about something that started to happen after the Glorious Revolution. Uh, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries and only came to fruition uh, around the 20th century. Uh, so it's a newcomer. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, westernization or uh, modernization of the East started around the same time. They mm -hmm. brought capitalism to us, thank you, uh, but at the same time, they brought the idea of democracy. This is why Marx said about India, okay, the British uh, went to India to ruthlessly exploit them, but at the same time, they brought civilization. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, nothing is good or bad, negative or positive, mm -hmm. uh, by itself alone. We, ha we have to look at things not in an either-or, relationship, but rather mm -hmm. not only, but also relationship, right? Yeah, a di dialectic yes. relationship, yeah. So, um, yeah, what, I, what I'm thinking right now is um, how, as an American, I have certain values um, that I hold dear uh, almost re reflexively, uh, you know, just uh, automatically. And um, one of them is this idea that every individual has certain kinds of natural rights, but also um uh has a uh, some other kind of value through the, the through self-expression and self-exploration um which is supreme like one of the american values is to give the people uh as individuals and collectively as much freedom to discover and, de and develop themselves as possible not and which means changing the existing conditions when necessary you know that which means uh pushing forward novelty and change. Um, that's a value. We don't live up to that value very well. In fact, quite the opposite uh, is off, is the truth of uh, American existence. But that is the value that we hold, right? We want to be ourselves and to be to, uh, on a course of self-discovery and have meaningful lives that are not just um, based on hedonistic pleasures, but on a deeper kind of happiness, right? So, um, so that uh that modern conception of what life is about i see i think is tied to the kind of uh, notions of democracy of the people of natural rights i mean historically it's evolved changed um and but i i uh so this is where my kind of uh i get it. I, yeah yeah <laughs> i get it, I get it. Yeah. but but uh, don't take it personally or don't get offended but americans are usually hypocrites. Uh, and I'm not saying this lightly, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, among other things, I'm a science fiction fan. Uh, I wrote my MA thesis on science fiction, by the way. Oh, yeah. I've got, that's my science fiction novel right behind me there. Yeah. Well, what is its name? It's Bash, Bash, Bash? Bash Revolution. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
It came out a few years ago. One of my favorite authors is Robert Heinlein. Mm, I like Heinlein a lot. I Um, like him too. But the problem is, although he was a great writer, I mean, great style, and he was very intelligent, Mm -hmm. but he was an unbelievable conservative, not even a conservative, a reactionary, right? Yeah, he was a libertarian reactionary. Uh, he was a sexist for God's sake. I'm sure he was. Absolutely. He was a sexist. He he championed uh, the war in Vietnam, right? Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did all those things. And at the same time, he was for all these American values, for mm-hmm. American people. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me remind you, in one of his worst novels, I mean, politically, Farnham's Freehold, maybe mm-hmm. you remember them, uh, remember it, maybe not. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic novel. And the guy, Farnham, is a survivalist who survives with his uh, black servant, son, daughter-in-law, daughter, wife. And in the end, he kills the black servant, he kills his wife, he kills his son and mm-hmm. takes the daughter, the daughter-in-law, and the daughter's female friend is, is a kind of a harem. Now, you cannot get much worse than that. That is true. Um, and but, it's presented, I have not read that book. To, oh, I have to confess that my, my knowledge of Heinlein is limited. Like I, I've read... Well, I love him, by the way. I, I've read... By, the, by his bootstraps, that short story, and that's it. That's all. But for me, yeah. that's enough for him to be great writer. That 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 short story is such a. Strange in a strange land. Haven't you read that? No, I I've owned it. I had it on my shelf for years, but I've never okay. I've never read it. Because, <laughs> you know, isn't that good enough? I've owned the book, and I can right. show it to people. Because although he was a reactionary, mm-hmm. Stranger in a Strange Land, the Strange Land became some kind of a. a iconic novel for the 80s generation mm-hmm. which is of course problematical but you americans are always problematical you yeah, see yeah. you always have those problems i mean and i read the novel yes it is in one sense revolutionary in one sense it is sexist it is racist mm-hmm. he is both at the same time this is why i say you americans are hypoc- hypocritical mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you are both at the same time. Do you and think that holding to that kind of individualism that I uh, romantically, you know, can't help but hold on to this sort of um, desire for a meaningful life of self-responsibility and it necessitates that kind of hypocrisy, um, developing some sense of another who is not an individual who doesn't have those same rights? Well, sometimes, yes. But in the end, you will come to a point and you have come to that point mm-hmm. where it ruthlessly splits the society in two the american society mm-hmm. it is the final outcome of like a hundred years of hypocrisy mm-hmm. because trump was not only a very dangerous narcissist he was also right about some things Mm-hmm. I mean, 
he really championed for some of the working class. He did. And at the same time, he was the champion of the billionaires, of course. Mm -hmm. He tried to do both. He managed to do both for some time. But in the end, he ended up dividing the society into two, much worse than any time in American history, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, I look, it's been pretty bad. It's been bad. We The partisanship and the division between the red and the blue has been intense for at least the last 30 years, you know, since since it, probably longer, uh, really, since Reagan's time, um, certainly. And but, but I do think. Neoliberalism. OK, neoliberalism does that. But no. Trump was not only a neoliberal. He was a populist neoliberal, which is uh, a wor- the worst combination you can get. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. He explain, was not- explain what that means. What was how is populism and neoliberalism combined in Trump? Do you think? Um, uh, because he was, I mean, neoliberalism is best defined by Foucault, uh, and it is not, says Foucault. Uh, just a rehashing of the old liberal idea, but very paradoxically, the rehashing of the liberal idea by state coercion. Right. It's it, the way I look at it is it, neoliberalism is a, is the is like Fordism for for the corporations, yes. or, or 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 um not Fordism but the welfare state for the corporations. It's um great. It, this yeah, is what Bernie says, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, he even goes further and says it's socialism for the corporations, right? I I, I don't think so. I have a different definition of socialism than, than that. But. No, no, no. But that, of course, yeah. he does this jokingly. Right, right, of right. Of course, he doesn't mean socialism. Right. Uh, but in any case, uh, so this is neoliberalism for you. I mean, it, and it's come about starting with Reag- the Reagan Thatcher era. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it went up and up and up and up. And during the 2008 crisis, it hit a wall or it hit the ceiling, let's say. And now it's, for the last 13 years, it's in a downfall. And in these last 13 years, all around the world, populist leaders start to emerge. Trump in in the States, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, of course, he's very, he's the very definition of a populist leader, Putin in Russia, and Modi in India. I mean, mm-hmm. more than half of the world is living under populist leadership. I mean, she, she, she in China, he is not exactly a populist leader because China has a different history. Mm-hmm. But he is as close as any Chinese leader can get to populism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and these all coincide with the downfall in neoliberalism. As neoliberalism falls, populism rises. And all these people, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Trump, Modi, Orban, they combine both in their personalities. And the first personal 
psychological issue we meet in all of them is an extreme, unchecked, narcissistic personality disorder. This is my psychosocial studies hat speaking mm. now. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, I cannot explain this whole thing only sociologically or only economically, but I have to go into psychoanalysis. Because combining these two needs a narcissistic personality. How and so? Why, why is, is not, uh, she is not populist in China because she is not narcissistic. Well, how, how does that combine it? How does it? Because it it seems to me like what we're describing as um, socialist or a populist, and those who, who the the populist turn is a turn away from. Uh, uh, it could be uh, conceived of as a turn away from neoliberalism, a, a turn perhaps back to nationalist welfare state spending and uh, and. Um, so, but but without giving up to corporations, so this is not exactly a turning back. I mean, in Turkey, Erdogan, of course, pretends to speak for the people, the oppressed people, and against the Kemalist, uh, Europeanized elitists. But at the same time, he has five big capitalists, most of them in. Uh, multinational, multinational no, capitalists. Mm. And they're all in the construction business and with multinational ties, of course. Mm. And for the last 15 years, he's feeding them all the time. So mm. they have they have come uh, to be counted among, two of them at least, among the uh, up-and-coming billionaires in the world. I mean, the, the thing about um, the... You know the the post World War II era where welfare state spending um, became the way the Fordist era, let's say, and these are all American ways of conceiving it, right? But the, it's just, yeah. I think it was the same all over the world. Um, uh, th that happened during the a boom, which meant that the the corporations and and capital uh, capitalist leaders were profiting. Uh, tremendously, capitalism loves rebuilding. Right. Um, so the, the the neoliberal turn happened when that boom when started to, to decline. When decided, right? yes. Yeah. And so now we're we're now we have the problem of the maintenance program of neoliberalism is is cracking up. It, it, we're not, and certainly we're not experiencing a boom. Um, as as we did after World War II, uh, but now there's still this turn back towards uh, statist welfare programs and nationalism uh, in terms of foreign policy or international relations coming up again. And that was, by the way, that was exactly foreseen by Immanuel Wallerstein mm -hmm. in early 1990s. He said liberalism, he didn't use the term neoliberal at the time, liberalism is coming to an end, it's going to face its crisis coming to 2020, mm -hmm. which prediction came true because mm -hmm. the 
the crackdown started 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is two different kinds of outs from it. And one of them is a combination of oriental despotism mm -hmm. with liberalism, mm -hmm. which sounds paradoxical, even an oxymoron, but this is exactly what is happening right now. Mm -hmm. So he was true on all counts. I mean, he was... Right. I mean, the, the number of millionaires and billionaires in China has been growing. Yes. Growing. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, there is has been a liberalization of, of China, uh, even as the, the authoritarian nature of the government has not changed. Yeah. It is a new liberalization, by the way. China has never known a liberal period in its history. Right. I mean, he went straight from empire through some kind of a so-called democracy a very short time into the Maoist state, which was which was called communist by the West, but it was it had nothing to do with communism. It was some kind of uh, solidarist corp corporatism. Mm -hmm. uh, communism is nothing like that to my mind mm -hmm. uh, and then of course uh, but he taught himself a communist by the way Mao was very mm -hmm. sincere uh, but after Mao the first the gang of uh, gang of five I think mm -hmm. uh, took over and then e eventually and incrementally uh, China became some kind of a populist, neoliberal, and uh, autocratic regime at the same time. Mm -hmm. Although they still have, hold on to the name of Chinese Communist Party and right. keep the uh, yellow and red flag and all that. So. China is a very good example of this, but what's happening in Russia is the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, Putin is no different than Stalin. There is a there is a very distinct continuity between Stalin and Putin. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens in India. Just skip the Gandhi era. Starting mm -hmm. with the old Mon Mongol Empire, uh, emperors and then the British rule, there is a continuity. Mm -hmm. And Modi is the representative of this continuity and he is a populist. And of course, he is trying to apply neoliberalism in all uh, avenues of life. But of course, he cannot manage that because there are a lot of different areas in cultural, uh, dif culturally different areas in India that capitalism cannot penetrate. So he has a very bad, very hard job in front of him. But Brazil, it happens, it's a, the same thing is happening. Well, you know, I'm thinking about this. Um, one of the problems with populism is, is the nationalism that emerges with it. Um, I mean, when you when I step back from the history, you know, and the People's Party and the I mean, I think the People's Party in the late 19th century are probably the best example of what a, a populist might be like. Right. Uh, and, and they failed and they were in, integrated into the Democratic Party. And 
but the populist turn kind of looked at broadly always has a nationalist component. Um, and the difficulty for working people and for everyday people is that when they, that they have no way to act in their own interests internationally, that, that, um, they have no network of mutual support. There is no international organizations for working people. There's no uh, party that has international ambitions for workers. And so when they try to act in their own interests, they see their interests as being interests aligned with the nation as opposed to the international international order of commerce and multinational corporation and so on. Um, I mean, there's good reasons for that. I mean, they they, they know that uh, the international corporations uh, look for cheap labor over, overseas to keep them out of jobs and worse, exploit and denigrate the people in, in foreign lands. It's not as though the people overseas are winning in this scenario. Um, so, uh, but, and so what they end up doing is saying, like, we want tighter borders, we want less, uh, we want American companies say we, we want um, better wages and more support from the state um, for the poor and, and for the working class. Um, and it seems like it, without an international organization, without a way to coordinate internationally, that we're never going to escape from a nationalist perspective for the for workers inside and a populist one probably too. Um, and but the, to rail against populism as um, a moral failing or as a as a as a uh, uh, and, and to question whether or not there's a the people uh, have the right to rule. It's I mean it's intellectually you're right. It's they're not just the people; they're the workers, right? But it, it seems as though again, like I said at the start, we risk losing um, the goodwill of the very people who we're supposed to be working in solidarity with. And I say. We, I mean, you know, leftists, but that doesn't mean the leftists aren't workers themselves. You know, they're just a certain kind of worker. So anyway, I, I, that's, that's all. I don't have a question. I'll just let you respond to, to what I just said. No, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm just worried. I'm not even like, I don't really disagree no, with I you. I understand the worry because, I mean, uh, for the last, uh, let's say, let's say starting from 1990, Mm -hmm. The official downfall of uh, state capital, uh, state socialism or state capitalism, mm -hmm. this is what I call it. Uh, the left is uh, in a crisis for 30 years. I mean, the crisis started way before that, but they became aware of the crisis only in the last three decades. Is that, I mean, everything, all the conditions are rife for a revolution, why don't the why doesn't the proletariat start on with it? Mm. Because you have failed to show them mm. the way to revolution. Whatever, whenever you started talking about the revolution, you showed them the damn Soviet Union which was nothing to be jealous about. I mean, they hated it when they saw it. They hated China when they saw it. Okay, there was propaganda and 
the Western media made it look uh, much worse than it was, but doesn't matter. It was worse. Mm-hmm. It was worse. I mean, certainly not better. You know, definitely, definitely and worse. I mean, yeah, because at least there was uh, upward mobility in uh, some European. Uh, countries, uh, they didn't even have that in, in the Soviet Union at the time. Right, right. I mean, for a very few, maybe, but it was yeah, right. I mean, cool. the problem with with upward, cool. the problem with upward mobility that always comes along with downward mobility for someone yes. else. It's not that's for you to go up. Some uh, it's yeah. a seesaw. I mean, it's for you to go up. Somebody has to come down in mm-hmm. capitalism. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem with leftist elitism is that the left has resented the working class for decades for leaving it alone for not making the revolution but of course as Le Guin told us over and over again you cannot make a revolution you can o- only be a revolution. Mm-hmm. And the left never did that because they were very comfortable in their comfort zones. Mm-hmm. In universities, in publishing houses, in uh, as artists, you see, they wrote, they wrote about the necessity of a revolution, they wrote uh, poems about the working class, and they were quite content with that. I'm not feeling very good about this conversation now. I feel that maybe I have been singled out for abuse here. I didn't. I, I, why, why? <laughs> as a publisher, as a, as, a, as a publisher and a writer and a yeah, no. Same boat here. I was a publisher. Right, right. I wasn't a. I know. I know. I'm not. Another, I'm not seriously well, upset. I'm just saying, like, I recognize no, no. myself here. No, when I denigrate you, I'm denigrating myself at the same time. So don't right. worry, we're in the same boat. Yeah, yeah that's right, right. But yes, the left's problem was that. I mean, mm-hmm. we were in our comfort zones. Let's confess to each other. Mm-hmm. We yeah. didn't want to leave our uh, comfort zones and blame the working class for it. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is where the populist uh, ideology is anchored. Is blaming the working class. Yes. Because the working class never trusted us because we were the ones in our comfort zones and blaming them for everything that's, that was not happening. The populace said, we can do it together to the working class. And of course, when the working class said, yes, let's do it, they just abandoned the working class and made their multinational corporations richer and richer. Mm. The populists. This is what they did. So, in the long run, they're much worse than us, of course. But if we say that, well, the populists are much worse, we, we were even a little, little bit better, and create another comfort zone, it won't work. You right. see, we have to go back and confess. Yeah, and and get out we, of our. We comfort have to zone. be good Catholics about this. Hmm. We have hmm. to to go into the confessional booth and confer, confess to our priests. 
who mm. are there. But, <laughs> uh, I, I For me, it would be Zizek. Whenever I get to interview Zizek, he's like yes. my priest, and I—he's not yes. my therapist. Uh, he's not my therapist, but he may be my my priest. Um, <laughs> because he would he would make a very bad therapist. <laughs> he, would, he would talk himself all the time. <laughs> no, I just talked to him a, about a week ago, and uh, I actually am in therapy for the first time ever, and uh, or for as an adult, and um, and I, I my therapist, who's a Lacanian of a type, um, says never listen to Zizek about how to have a romantic relationship that's not you don't want to do that and i told Zizek that and uh and then it, it was fun after that how <laughs> he responded I, I hope so well back in 2007 he told me that well i only had in 2007 by the way hmm. i only had sexual relations with three women and i was married to each of them that sounds like a, a good uh you know a, he's a good boy <laughs> yes, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. You see, mm -hmm. he's never mm -hmm. used drugs in his life. And he's never had extramarital relationships. Mm -hmm. So he's a very good boy, although he looks and sounds like a maverick. Well, he is a maverick. You can be both. You can be both. Yes. Listen, oh. listen, this is a great setup for the next half of our conversation. We'll talk about gender... And all the things that I, as a straight white guy, don't like, American to boot, I mean, all the worst things that I don't uh, particularly enjoy talking about sometimes because I I, 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 uh, I, think my inner reactionary comes out at times. But I want to talk to you about why uh, you think um, sexuality and gender is maybe as important as class today. Is that, would you, you would say that? I would, so I, concede. I would concede that they are. Okay, I see. I I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so. I know that makes me bad, but uh, I think class is fundamental in that you can't address. Of course, it is fundamental. L let's agree on that. Of course, mm -hmm. it is fundamental. But in today's political world, gender relations politically are as important. Okay, listen. I'm going to stop the recording here. I'm going to give you take a five five ten minutes, and I'll send you another link for the okay. second half. Okay.